Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. Our next guests here on West Coast Live are both artists. One's medium is that of oil painting and is the collaborator with our other guest whose medium is the, the written word, the screenplay. Will you please welcome Robert Watson and Ray Bradbury to West Coast Live. Thank you very much, both of you, for being here. Thank you. Welcome. I understand that uh, you describe yourself uh, that the only science fiction you've written is Fahrenheit 451 and everything else is fantasy. Fantasy and magic realism and good God, I don't know. I've done a book on Ireland. I lived there for a year. I've done 12 books of poetry, 26 plays, and a, and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> what was the first, uh, first bit of writing you had published? Oh, it was, a, it was a humorous piece in Rob Wagner's script in 1940. It was a takeoff on people who talk in cliches. It's called, It's Not the Heat, It's the Hue. He never finished the word, someone killed him, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, Robert Watson is illustrating uh, an edition of uh, The Martian Chronicles. There are scenes, are uh, doing a scene? No, no. It's a painting I did in 1957 for the dust jacket for The Martian Chronicles. It was just a painting, no printing, no nothing, no, no, uh, no lettering. It was just something that Ray had asked me to do for the second edition. And uh, he ended up buying it, and that was it, except that Doubleday had come off and done the whole thing in red, they, the red planet, you understand, and they, they really messed it big. So we got What together. were the original colors? It's a very, very deep, beautiful blues. It could be one of these uh, skies outside right here. Uh, oh, the, the desolate landscape, some ruins and so forth, little figure out there. And uh, it was a t of a time gone by or a time in the future. And uh, Ray had called and said, well, Double-A wanted to have a rocket ship coming in. I said, no way. I said, nobody's even seen a rocket ship land yet, much less take off, you know. I said, it looked like a V-2 coming in over London, if you're not careful. <laughs> and um, so we forgot about it until a few years ago. We said, well, let's do it right. Let's. So we took the original painting. He'd bought the painting from me. From, I had a show at Hammer Galleries in New York. And uh, he'd bought the painting. I think he paid 300 bucks for it. He's insured it for 10,000 now. <laughs> and um, so we blew it up in this beautiful, beautiful graphic. In other words, we took the painting as it originally was. And we had this great graphic made and signed and numbered, limited edition, and we're we got it on the road. It's the Bob and Ray show or the Madonna tour. I'm not sure which. <laughs> How much uh, have you had to fight publishers, for instance, who've wanted to put rocket ships on your covers or, or take a painting that's blue and make it red in order to fit their vision of what fantasy or science fiction well, is? Well, the trouble is they don't tell you. They go ahead and do it. And then when it's finished, you can't do anything about it. They, they printed this in red without telling us. So now we have a chance to put it back into the blue colors. It's wonderful. On occasion, with some of my children's books, R is for rocket, S is for space, I saw their designs finished, and I said, throw them away. I'll get an artist myself. So I went to Joe Magnini. I'd worked with him for years, and I told him what I wanted. I gave him the metaphor. I'm not an artist, but if you can provide the metaphor, then you've got a good cover, and he did two wonderful covers. Yeah. So that's what you, you do. You put your foot down. I designed the jacket for my first book 47 years ago. I went to a local, the art center, 
He said, introduce me to all your photographers, and I'll look at their work. And I looked at 40 photographers' works, and I picked one guy, and he photographed the cover for me. What, uh, so much of your, your work, is it, it's, it's there, it's, it's on the written page, that the idea of having another artist try to visualize it uh, and express it. Are you surprised by what Robert Watson uh, would do, what his vision would be compared to yours? No, because I discovered his work first, huh? and I knew his, his, the way he painted. And I went into an art gallery, the Cowie Gallery in the Biltmore uh, Hotel uh, back in 1952, and I saw all this gorgeous work on the walls. I said, oh my God, I've got I've to have this man on the, one of my jackets someday. Huh? And the, the opportunity came, and we used the work, and I was absolutely right. He was perfect. I don't know if you, uh, you may have read the, the morning paper. Uh, there was the, uh, the story of the space shuttle rocket. It has woodpeckers putting holes, holes in it. Did you, did you <laughs> no, see that? No, I haven't seen that. It's, it's, got, it's riddled with woodpecker holes, and they've got photographs of woodpeckers pecking holes in the skin of the rocket. It sounds like NASA to me. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where is this uh, rocket? Uh, Cape Canaveral. One of the, one of the yeah. a new one? They haven't shot yet? Yeah. My yeah. God. Anyone have a, a copy of the New York Times or the, the Chronicle with them here? Let's, uh, there's, a, there's a photograph of this here. Space shuttle is grounded by lovesick woodpeckers. <laughs> That's pecker. wonderful. That's great. I believe it all. I believe it all. <laughs> I know. Uh, well, so much, for our, so much for our space dollar, huh? Yeah. But it, uh, it, it struck me as well that this, this might be, uh, you know, an episode in one of your accounts. You never know. It will be now. <laughs> it will be now. At least it would make a point. I'm not going to put a bird in there, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, ideas like this give you uh, notions for poetry, mainly. That's a, that's a small idea. It could become a large one. For instance, I, I did a haiku, a semi-haiku a while back because of my experience with hummingbirds and my favorite cat. And it runs like this. Oh, cat that I really love. Oh, hummingbird that I really love. What are you doing in the cat's mouth? <laughs> and that's, that's, that's your haiku. <laughs> the, uh, the Martian Chronicles has a, has a remarkable scene in, in which uh, Tomas Gomez is, is trying to touch objects of the Martian, and the Martian is trying to touch a coffee cup, uh, very mundane, but they're, they're, uh, the objects don't exist for each other. That's right. Yeah, it's a, it's a lovely story, and it turned into one of the better portions of the Martian Chronicles TV show 15 years ago. The program wasn't very good. It was mainly boring. But that section, uh, with the encounter with the Martian and the Earthmen, is very touching, a lovely scene. And, uh, but I'd love to do the whole thing over again from top to bottom, and I hope I will have a chance some year soon. Why would you want to do it over again? Because it's boring. And, uh, oh, you're talking of the television. Yeah, or, or for the theater. I'm doing over, for instance, a Fahrenheit 451 next year with Mel Gibson, and I'm, I'm writing the screenplay, and he may direct it, and this time it, everything will be there because Truffaut left a lot of things out. Truffaut's film is very nice, uh, and the last reel is gorgeous and makes me cry every time I see it because it has this fabulous score by Bernard Herrmann, wonderful photography and wonderful evocative landscape of the book people in the wilderness with the snow falling, remembering their favorite book. But that's the best part of the film. I want the whole thing to be that beautiful. 
What was the most distressing thing that was left out of Truffaut's version? Well, they left out the mechanical hound. He's, he's the metaphor of evil, isn't he? He's the manifestation of the, of the inherent malice in mankind, and you have to have him there to represent these people. You spend uh, a lot of, of your work collaborating with other artists, with film directors, film producers, with actors, with painters. Uh, that's, uh, that's unusual for some writers. Well, I'm, I'm, my next book is called A Journey to Farm Metaphor. I'm a collector of metaphors, starting when I was a kid and I saw King Tut come out of the tomb when I was three years old and I was curious about this metaphor of time and death. Huh? And then Lon Chaney filled my life from the time I was three, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Phantom of the Opera. And when he died when I was 10, it was the end of the world because he acted out all these metaphors of death and violence. And then King Kong came along, you can't beat that, huh? A 50-foot ape to have a love affair with a 50-foot ape. And then I met uh, Ray Harryhausen when I was 19, just out of high school. And he was animating dinosaurs in his garage. And we became friends forever. And he animated dinosaurs, and I wrote screenplays for them. So that's the metaphor for primeval time. Uh, always metaphors. And as a painter, uh, you collaborate with a writer. Do you work in metaphors also? He's, well, I guess so, but he's actually very much of a Renaissance man. I mean, this is true. I mean, I've gotten to know him rather well on this trip, and uh, an extraordinary human being. And I'm surprised he won't go on to 110 years old, uh, redoing stuff until he gets it perfect. <laughs> <laughs> What's astonished you most about him in your travels? <clears throat> he's the last great American. I mean it. I mean, he's an old-fashioned American, and he's a genuine human being, and everybody that touches him loves him. Uh, he picked up my son last night and hugged him and kissed him on the cheek. I thought he's a, you know, a deputy district attorney down of Isaiah. I thought he was going <laughs> to drop over, you know? My God. <laughs> I, I play dangerously, don't I? <laughs> that would knock any sort of district attorney off his or her pins. You know? That's right, yes. <laughs> The, uh, uh, the, there's so much work uh, talk now in, in, uh, about hyperspace, hyperreality, virtual reality, uh, worlds of, of the imagination that you can't touch but try to participate in. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have desire to participate in virtual reality, to put on gloves and masks? And well, I'm working on an IMAX project with Doug Trumbull now, who did a lot of special effects for 2001 and Close Encounters of a Third Kind and Buzz Aldrin is part of it, and uh, Robert McCall, the artist. And we're working on a sort of virtual reality journey in a, one of these huge moving boxes that Doug Trumbull has designed. But the reason I'm there is to try to put a brain into the robot body. I, had, I lectured in front of a bunch of virtual reality people uh, four months ago. And there were 2,000 people from all the, over the United States, and they're all, they showed all these films before I came on. And I came on and I tore their skin off. I said, you know, you're brainless, you know. This is fireworks. I love fireworks, but there's no idea there. It's pure, pure visual metaphor. Now let me put a brain between your ears. The next film you do has got to mean something. You can't come out of the theater like out of Terminator, Terminator 2, and you, it's like a Chinese dinner. An hour later, you're hungry, huh? Yeah. So a lot of this stuff is meaningless until we put an idea at the center of all of these. What idea would you put in, or is it up to whomever, whomever it is that's creating it? If I were doing, I'd, I'd have human beings at the center doing human things. 
And the reason the Martian Chronicles works is because it's all human beings on Mars. They're in love or they're not in love. They hate or they don't hate. And they have beginnings, middles, and ends. And that's missing when the, uh, not that I don't enjoy seeing some of the Schwarzenegger films, I do. But uh, it's meaningless because there are no human beings involved. Even though there are love stories and hopes of survival in some of those films? Well, here and there, but some have no love story whatsoever. In one of those Terminator films, there are no human beings there at all. What, uh, what led you to the, the fantasy world rather than a, a much more sort of concrete world of, um, you know, say, a New Yorker short story? Oh, God, that would be horrible, wouldn't it, huh? <laughs> Just a dreadful magazine. And it's... <laughs> Right, right, it's terrible. It, it, it used to be a human magazine, and now it's a gossip column, huh? A gossip column, and to hell with it, yes. But no, what, what, see, what led me into this is, is Lon Chaney when I was three. The Hunchback of Notre Dame is a very human story about a, a crippled man, huh? And his impossible love, Phantom of the Opera, is a man with a destroyed face, with an impossible love. Huh? All of Cheney's films were about impossible love affairs that could not be uh, tested or culminated. So therefore, you grew up with that. Then I read the science fiction magazines when I was seven or eight. Buck Rogers came into my life when I was nine, fell madly in love with the future. And then I saw the Chicago World's Fair in 1932, uh, uh, 33. And again, I wanted to live, I wanted to be part of that city. I wanted to build the cities of the future. So when you hyperventilate the way I do, you've got to write about it, huh? Yeah. So, so in a way, uh, wanting to be in the future is kind of an impossible love for you. Except you build it as you go. Uh -huh. And I've been able, I've had input on three malls in California. I didn't intend to start out to do this, but I wrote an article for the LA Times 23 years ago criticizing the way the city was going to hell and how to rebuild it and what to do, where, where to put the restaurants and the theaters and what have you. And a, a architect came along, John Jarity, and invited me to lunch three years later and, and said, have you seen the Glendale Galleria? I said, yes. He says, that's yours. I said, what do you mean? He says, that's your article that you had in the LA Times. I copied your ideas. And I said, am I allowed to say that? He said, yes, because I said, I want to be able to tell people I'm your father. Huh? <laughs> so, so that's how I got into architecture and city planning, and I've been doing all sorts of work like that since. Robert Watson, have you had uh, similar eclectic explorations and forays? No. Uh, if, if, it doesn't, if it does not have paint on the end of a stick, I don't know how to make it work, <laughs> honest to God. I've had over 151 man shows around the world, and uh, this is, this is the, almost the final cap of this particular venture, and uh, I'm going to run to Mexico and lie on a beach and drink margaritas, I think. <laughs> well, that sounds, uh, uh, are you also in pursuit of an impossible love? Yes. Yeah. It, it's, um, oh, I think it's what Gauguin was looking for when he went to the South Sea, you know, to hell with it all. I'm tired of it. I'm bored with it. Uh, pioneers, young people like Ray can do this. I, I don't. I don't want. I don't. I don't want to mess with it anymore. Will you take your paints with you? I'll have to. <laughs> this will last about forty-eight hours. He'll get to Mexico. He'll have sixteen margaritas, and then he say, "To hell with that!" and come back to painting. Huh? <laughs> what was the uh, the first book of Ray's that you read? Uh, I had read some Penny Press out of Britain. Uh, it was pulp, and. Um, then the first edition of Martian Chronicles, I guess 51, I got my hands on it, and uh, I read that. I said, well, yeah, I'm really, I'm from Penny Press. And uh, 
it stuck in my head. So then by 19, it was 57 when I got that call. I was riding very high at that point. Uh, before then, like like Ray, you know, a struggling young artist. And uh, but by that time, uh, I was doing this uh, show with Hammer Galleries in New York, and uh, so it, that. I, I drew back and I remembered, I remembered without having to reread the book, I remembered the, the imagery, I remembered the emotional imagery that it cast up for me because I'd been a heavy reader when I was a kid also. And so it was just a snap to sit down and say, that is the impact that it had on me. So I have to go back, I don't go forward. I, for me, bigger isn't better, better is better. And more isn't better, better is better. The, uh, the Martian Chronicles are set in, what, 2002? Yes, we're, ca we're catching up on it. I've got to go through and redate all the dates. In, the <laughs> in fact, there are some of the dates in the book right now that are 1975, 1980, and I've got to change those. So uh, tomorrow morning, I think I should do that, right? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the task of uh, catching up with the future is always uh, sort of it's just beyond. Well, uh, we're living a lot of it now. Of course, the stuff I put in Fahrenheit 451, uh, 40 years ago, where we're living it, right? MTV, and uh, if you watch your local TV news, you know what I'm talking about. It's all crap, isn't it, huh? <laughs> you don't want to watch local TV news because it's murders that you didn't commit, rapes you had nothing to do with, funerals you don't want to go to, and AIDS you don't want to catch. It's, that's all it is, huh? And it's in 15-second sound bites, factoids, huh? And, of course, it just whirls right off your mind. So we're going through this period where I try to tell people, don't watch local TV news. You can watch McNeil there, huh, who are responsible and intelligent and non-political. Huh? Yeah. We don't want political people talking to us on the news shows. We want information on which we can base our vote. So you got McNeil there, and you have Brinkley on Sunday. You have labels on the people so you know who they represent. And that's great. And the McLaughlin show, if you can understand them. <laughs> so when you, when you were going to, to sit and write your next piece of fantasy, is it, is it to escape the present, no. to escape the world of no, local no. TV news? No, it's to represent the world. It's like I always use the, the metaphor of Perseus and Medusa. Uh, the only way you kill Medusa, you don't look right in her face. You look in the bronze shield, and then you look over your, sh over your shoulder and cut off her head with a sword. That's what science fiction is. You pretend to look at the future. You're actually looking at something at your elbow here. But by pretending it's the future, people will read it and not know you're talking about them. And they will then digest it. It's like Fahrenheit 451 is about communism and the Russians and their horrible society. And it's popular in Russia. They didn't realize I'm talking about them. <laughs> Did you ever have an FBI file that you know of? No, of course not. I'm clean as a hound's tooth. <laughs> I'm, I'm dangerous, but clean. <laughs> and, and for you, painting is, is like looking into a mirror? I mean, that's a tricky, that would be a tricky task. The Russians owe him $16 million. In royalties? In royalties that he hasn't collected. They love his work, but they won't pay him. Would you take uh, rubles? No, because they're not worth anything. <laughs> no, someday, someday, yeah. But uh, no, they, they, the Russians are jolly. They come up and laugh in your face, say, hey, we've done 18 films on your short stories. We've done the Martian Chronicles as a major film in Russia. I said, oh, gee, thanks. Uh, when am I going to see it? Well, someday, huh? someday. So maybe I'll, they'll jet me over, and we'll have a festival, and I'll see the Illustrated Man and the Martian Chronicles. With a Russian sensibility. Yeah, well, they seem to understand it all right. Uh, 
but uh, they just don't want to pay up. <laughs> do, you, uh, do you mind that? Well, you can't bother yourself with that. We, I sent Armand Hammer over, oh, 10, 15 years ago to try to get the money. He was friendly with all the Russians. But even this man with great influence couldn't get one ruble out of them. Couldn't collect your royalties. Not a, not a bit. If you want to hear more of this from Ray, we will be down at the Union Square Galleries at the St. Francis this afternoon, and he will talk to each one of you individually and hug you individually. <laughs> and, and uh, I mean, you're a big guy. I mean, you could lift everyone up off their feet, right? Well, not really, but I could try, yeah. <laughs> All right. Robert Watson, painter who did the uh, illustration for the second edition of the Martian Chronicles. You'll have a chance to see it in its original blue sky. And a one-man show along with it. And a one-man show along with it. Yeah. And Ray Bradbury. Uh, fantasy writer and uh, just writer, author, right. citizen of the world. Thank you very much for being here. Let's go. Real that. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and uh, we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.